Thanks so much for the chance that some of our people got to represent us over there in Hong Kong. And Lord, we're grateful for that opportunity that you opened up and for the way in which you came through for them and just ministered to those kids and helped them to hear clear presentations of the gospel and gave our people the opportunity to, to share. And Lord, we do pray for everyone who's over there now, those who you drew to yourself during that time and those who are getting closer and they're more open and they certainly know more than they used to and they're still maybe contemplating what this would mean in their life if they, if they gave their lives over to you. God, continue to work. <coughs> Lord, strengthen the missionaries and the pastors who are there to continue to, to preach the gospel clearly and to be able to communicate the freedom that is in Jesus. And so, Lord, just continue to bless the fruit of, of this trip and in the lives of all the people who went as well, Lord. Continue to speak to them and strengthen them and, and to call them for whatever you have for them to do in terms of serving you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, let's all stand. One more song. First John 4, 7 and 8. Stretch your legs. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. All right. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, First John 4, 7 and 8. All right, turn around and say hi to three people, and then you can have a seat. Good. Before we start the Bible study, we have two newlyweds who just got married. They're standing up right there, Dwayne and Vicki. Congratulations, you guys. You got to love people who spend their honeymoon coming to church. But they were late. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> Way to go. 
Romans, <laughs> Romans chapter 15. We were kind of wrapping this thing up. Paul's talking about, he went from explaining how important it is for us to put the gospel first and, and not to do anything that would stumble someone and keep them from coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ, especially those scruples and those personal preferences that people have. But as he goes from that, he flows into just talking about his ministry. And we really see who he was and what made his heart burn. And he described how he saw the, in verse 19, mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, which is way up near Croatia there in Central Europe, and it was a full circle all the way down into North Africa and everything. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Wow, what, a, what an amazing thing. Basically, most of the known world in those days. And so Paul showed us why we can push out a little bit, why we need to stretch ourselves and, and open ourselves up to going somewhere besides next door in order to take the gospel. It's, it's that important. And he said... Um, and so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. Much has been made about his thing of not building on another man's foundation, and there are some people who have tried to make this a major principle. Paul certainly didn't say that Everyone should do that because everywhere he planted churches, later other people had to come in and build on what he started. But as an apostle, as someone who was laying the foundation, um, he was just driven to be as effective as he could be wherever God would take him. And what he's explaining to the church in Rome, as he's going to get into later here, is that Man, there were just such pressing needs where people had never heard of Jesus. And, and I know right away there were converts from Jerusalem after Pentecost who moved back to Rome. And we know Priscilla and Aquila were there. Others were there. And, and, um, and so, you know, there was a work going on. And as attractive as that was to him, Paul felt a unique call to try to go and introduce the gospel to places where it hadn't been heard. And so that's his explanation as to why he hadn't made it out to, to these people, who he knew many of them, he had met many of them, and certainly knew people that they knew and things like that, as we'll see next week in chapter 16. But we see Paul's priority, I want to get the gospel out to people who haven't heard. And that certainly ought to affect us. Now, every one of us isn't called to go break new ground somewhere, but at the same time, it's something that ought to always be close to our heart, to at least support and encourage those who are out there in places where the name of Jesus really isn't common the way it is here. That, that was Paul's heart. That was what was driving him to do what he did. And it's interesting in verse 21 that he, he quotes in Isaiah chapter 52, and this is a prophecy concerning Jesus really about his death. And um, 
the context of it makes it really interesting. You see what it basically says is, to whom he was not announced, they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. So that just sounds like, yeah, I wanted to tell people about Jesus, especially people that didn't get it. But when you see the context, and you can turn back to Isaiah 52 for just a moment. It comes at the end of chapter 52 and right before the lead-in of chapter 53, which is, to my mind, the greatest chapter maybe in the whole Bible, certainly in the Old Testament. Um, the story of Jesus dying for our sins, um, predicted, of course, hundreds of years before he was born. But verse 15 of Isaiah 52, well, you can see beginning with verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage, his face, was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, Kings shall shut their mouths at him, and what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. And so that's the, the, that last part of that verse is what Paul quotes. Now, bear in mind, it's a prophecy concerning the message of Jesus' death as it is heard among the Gentiles, as as people other than the Jewish people would be able to hear about it. And it's also a message that suffering is tied into, and a lot of times we aren't aware of that. We don't, we don't think of that. But for Paul, when he talked about suffering, when he talked about witnessing, rather, he was talking about suffering everywhere he went. He was stoned and beaten and things like that. The, the Greek word for witness is the word martyros, which is the word from which we get our word martyr. And in the first century, being a witness meant being a martyr. And so when Paul is talking about, you know, getting the gospel out there where it hasn't been heard, and as he is associating it with Isaiah 52, 15, um, the connection is very clear and, and it becomes clear as we read on that for him, he was laying his life on the line as Jesus had laid his life on the line for him. And so as you continue to read in Isaiah 53, and, you know, verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we didn't esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Cut off out of the land of the living, and so on. Yet, verse 10, it pleased the Lord to literally crush him. He's put him to grief. And so, seeing this suffering Savior, Jesus, 
the introduction right before that picture is expressed is of the fact that this message would be spread. And so here, Paul in Romans 15 is letting them know that it's his heart and it's his calling and it's his mission, not just to spread the word, but to spread the word no matter what it would cost him, to identify with the sufferings of Jesus Christ, to be connected to him in that way. It's no, it's no just chance that he chose this verse to exemplify what his ministry was like, and sure enough, it, it was that way. But let's read on here in, in Romans 15, verse 22. For this reason I also have been much hindered from coming to you. So he said, because I've been trying to do this, that's why I haven't made it to Italy yet, and you know Paul as a Roman citizen wanted to be there. Perhaps he had been there before he was a Christian. You'd expect that to be the case as Paul was a, was a, a leader among the Jews and, and as a Roman citizen, highly educated, certainly it would have been as likely for him to go see Rome as, as it would be for any of us to go see Washington, D.C. or something. But he said... Since he's been a Christian, he hasn't been able to come and see them. But now, no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you if first I may enjoy your company for a while. So Paul said, my intention is to come and see you guys and just take a break relax minister to you but not primarily come there to preach because hey i know the gospel's already there and you have it but for me it'll be a break on my way to spain when i'm heading to spain that's another place that i want to go that will open doors for the gospel lots of gentiles there and lots of them who haven't heard the gospel so i'm planning on leaving where I am, and I'll be heading out your way. Notice the, it's, a, it's an interesting choice of words here in verse 23. But now no longer having a place in these parts. Now Paul had been around the Grecian Empire and around Asia Minor, at this point probably in Corinth. And he had been teaching there, he had he spent three years in Ephesus, and so all of that is around the center of the, of the Grecian world, really. And then, of course, going and planting churches up in present-day Turkey, or Asia Minor at the time. He had also logged some time in, in Israel also. But I like that, that he said, I no longer have a place in these parts, <laughs> I don't know what had happened if God had raised up other leaders who now could do the work, if, if things were uncomfortable with some of the leaders who were there, or, or if he just felt like, you know, I've told you everything I know. I've, I, I've finished what God has called me to do, but, I, but I, I'm just fascinated by the image of Paul going, all of a sudden he wakes up and says, I don't belong here anymore. I, this isn't home. This isn't the place where I am. And just that antsy sort of sense of 
wanderlust maybe, an adventure driven by the desire to again introduce the gospel to, to people who hadn't heard. Paul was way more into that than he was into arguing with people who already thought they had all the answers. Paul wasn't interested in say, staying somewhere and having theological debates over minor doctrinal issues. He was a guy who goes, I want to get the gospel out. And so it's something interesting, and I think it's something that we should all be open to, rather than just to assume that we are to stay where we are, doing what we are, to just be open to the Lord, always. And for some people, that's a real scary thing. But to just say, God, if, if you're done with me here, and it's time for me to move on. That's what I want to do. I don't want to just stay to maintain things. I just don't want to stay as kind of a relic or be here because I've always been here. Now, some of us are very conservative by nature, and, and we won't make a move unless we're really pushed. But for all of us, I think this is a reminder to be open to no longer having a place in these parts. I mean, sometimes it might just mean changing churches, and I'm certainly not trying to get rid of anyone. But you've all been through this in the past. You're somewhere, and it's been home, and, and, and you love it, and you're attached to it. But all of a sudden, you start going, this just isn't feeling like home anymore. You know, and, and, I, and I think so often, because pastors are so, our egos are so personally tied up with, whether or not people come to our church. And, I mean, every person who leaves our church, it, it hurts my feelings. It makes me sad that there are people I used to see and, you know, fellowship with and I don't anymore. Um, that's just the reality. That's just flesh. It's selfishness, I'm sure. It's insecurity. So I have all sorts of reasons. Now, there are a few exceptions, there are some people you're glad, honestly, there are some people you're really glad to see them leave. But for the overwhelming majority of people in our church, I want them all to stay. You know, I, I want to go, please stay. We want you here. We'll give you ice cream after church. You know? <laughs> but, but in reality, what I really try to do and what I hope you will always pick up from me is if it ever feels like, you know, this isn't it, by all means, be ready to go. God may have some real reasons why he wants to move you on. And it's sad when people leave here, move to another state, and, you know, they try to make me feel good by writing to me. And, you know, I heard, I got a letter from the Allisons uh, a couple days ago, and, and they're, you know, living out in Texas, and they're, and they're just saying all the things that they're involved in in their church. He's on the worship team, and she's doing this and that. And, and I'm like, I'm so thankful that they've found that place. But then Debbie said, but still, it doesn't feel like home. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, you know what's up. And someday, maybe God will let you come back. But I didn't say that. <laughs> but, you know, you kind of feel that. But in reality, God help any of us if we get so set where we are that he can't make us feel like, I think I'm done here. Because you don't want to just stay when it's not, you know, when it's really time for something fresh and to move on. There's much to be said for faithfulness. 
It's required of a steward that he be found faithful. So people are just always bouncing everywhere, never settle in, never get accountability. That's not a healthy thing either. But I'm telling you, I want my most faithful people in this church, the people I absolutely depend on. I would fall on my sword if they left. Yet, I want them to be open to hearing God say, you're done here. Because that's, that's what Paul did, and he showed us. Why did he do that? Because he's got, a, he's got a message to preach. He has ministry to perform, the gospel to share. And if there's ever a place that God wanted him to go, other than where he is, he wanted to do it. Paul even dreamed about wanting to go places like Rome, for instance. Man, I've always wanted to be there. And for us, it's good. It's one of the reasons why I think missions trips are so important to get out and and if you go well you guys if you don't have a missions trip plan that really suits your fancy there's cards out there with all of our missionaries on them how about planning a vacation where you're going to be near one of the missionaries and just stop in and encourage them for a few days and pray for them hey it's a great excuse to go to exotic places and i mean we know like sometimes and Sometimes we stay in some really bad places. But like, for instance, in, in northern Thailand where we support um, several orphanages there through Rose and, and Dave Nichols is there and, and um, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And we've stayed, I mean, we stayed at this one place one time. <laughs> yeah, we're not supposed to tell people about it, but it was incredible and cheap. And it's like, it's, it, you felt like, you felt guilty, like, wow, we're on vacation. It was so nice. And yet, you could do that. I mean, why do you want to just go stay in a beautiful, exotic location where you're just crowded with tourists and, and uh, you're, just, you're just seeing a bunch of people from here who are all over there, you know, fighting over a little patch of sand on the, on the beach or... And you got all the Okies, and it's like, no offense, Mom. My mom's an Okie, so I can say that. But, you know, there are incredible places you could go in the world where God could also use you in, a, in an awesome way. And we have connections. We know people in some of those places. And I think that it's something that we should always just don't get too settled. Just be open to what God's going to do. I remember... When I graduated from seminary, they, they had, um, you know, a book that they put out of all the seminary graduates. And, they're, you know, most people are looking for ministry and seeing where God's going to call them. It was amazing. Like, almost everyone, you go down the list, and they said they're open to going to California or Oregon or Hawaii <laughs> or Colorado. It's like... What if God needs you somewhere else? Would that, would that be okay? How would that work for you? you know? and, I, and I think it's just an openness that Paul shows us. And it's kind of good to see this too because he's going by this feeling, but Paul wasn't always certain where he was supposed to go. And you see as he discusses it, he's kind of like, well, you know, I'm, here's what I'm thinking, but... And then he goes into now talking about his trip to Jerusalem, which ended up he was t treated horribly and arrested and ultimately got a government ticket to Rome. 
But it's interesting even when you, in fact, turn over to Acts chapter 21. And this is a, a much debated passage of Scripture as a question of whether Paul went against God's will or whether, um, you know, he didn't. And Jerry and I were talking about this this week. But Acts chapter 21, verse 1. Let's see. Well, actually, we'll go... Um, In verse uh, 7, when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. Uh, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions, this is Luke talking, departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. We'll actually back up a little bit. Verse um, 4 finding disciples there entire, we stayed there seven days. And the disciples entire told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. So then they ended up heading there anyway. And as they got down to Caesarea, they came to the house of Philip. Um, and the man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, verse 10, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. So you have the Christians, you know, they're entire saying, Paul, the Spirit has told us you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. And then he gets down there to Caesarea, and you have another prophet come and act out this little scenario, and he says, you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get tied up and bound, and you're going to be a prisoner. And so everybody who's with Paul, including Luke, was going, hey, don't you think God's trying to tell you something? And, and again, we can sit there. The scriptures don't say whether Paul was right or wrong. It just records what he did. So maybe God didn't want him going to Jerusalem at this time. Maybe he did. You can't do it both ways and see what he did. And so it makes for fun theological discussions. Anytime there's something the Bible doesn't say, everyone wants to fill in the gaps. But also, it's a great testimony of Romans 8.28 because it worked out really well that he went, he had a great opportunity to testify, and then was on his way not only to testify in front of some great political leaders like Festus, but then to then go to Rome and have that opportunity as well. But the point is, for Paul, he felt like it was time to move, and he went to, to move. 
And then he just headed for Jerusalem. And what, what, what he doesn't tell us about in Romans is that everybody was telling him it's crazy to go there. And they were prophesying. And the Spirit was telling them, hey, you're going to end up, you know. But Paul, his attitude was, I'm ready for that. Is that all you've got? Is that what, is that what I'm supposed to be afraid of? I mean, when you've been beaten as much as Paul had to say, I'm going to beat you, it really, doesn't, it really didn't affect him too much. But see, Paul also had this thing where, again, for him, witnessing meant suffering. It was the same thing. He was going to take that message of the gospel, and he expected it to hurt. He expected it to be difficult. How different it is for us. How hard it is for us to even understand something like that. Over in Colossians, this is an interesting verse, so you should know about this. In Colossians chapter 1, difficult verse. I like difficult verses. Gives you a lot to think about. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul, talking about the gospel as he always does. And he says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God and so on. Fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? What could possibly be lacking in the afflictions of Christ? I mean, is this teaching that somehow Jesus' suffering wasn't enough? We have to suffer too in order for people's sins to be forgiven? Well, certainly not. When Jesus died, that was sufficient. His sacrifice paid the penalty for every sin that's ever been committed. It was sufficient to enable every person to have their sins forgiven. So what's Paul talking about with his sufferings fulfilling, filling up the, the sufferings of Christ? It's a difficult question. But when you think about Paul, you know, and I mean, we can relate to this a little bit. When someone comes and suffers and is preaching the gospel, it says something to you. Jesus needed to die, but other than fulfilling prophecy, why did he have to suffer so much? Many of you, as you were probably watching The Passion of the Christ a few years ago, or watching that grotesque scene and going, did he have to do all this? Um, was all this suffering necessary? Wasn't it just give his life a ransom, shed his blood? Couldn't it have been done in a nice, clean way? I don't know, but I know this. Um, for me and, and for a lot of us, knowing that he suffered means a lot. Because then when I suffer, I understand he understands. But not only that, seeing him suffering 
gives a credibility to the message that it wouldn't have otherwise. And so, I mean, one of the reasons why I am absolutely certain that Jesus rose from the dead, I mean, if it was just Jesus and just like four guys wrote about it and whatever, yeah, you know, you could, it could be debatable. But thousands of witnesses to the resurrection were willing to be beheaded, were willing to be skinned alive, were willing to be boiled in oil, rather than to retract their statement that they saw Jesus alive and that he spoke to them and that they touched him and that they ate with him. And, you know, somebody who preaches about Jesus and they're making a bunch of money off of it, they don't have that kind of credibility. You look at the, at the, the martyrs in the, in the history of the church and you have to go, why in the world would they do what they are doing except that? There's a credibility that comes with suffering that doesn't come any other way. And because his suffering gave credibility to his claims, and then he rose from the dead proving it, so also throughout history, we look at people who are suffering for the cause of the gospel, and we go, wow, that's real. These are people who really believe what they're saying. And for Paul, that's the way it was, filling up what was lacking or continuing in that testimony, that witness that says, I'm willing to hurt because I believe this message. And, and I think sometimes when we live our lives and we're being so careful to make sure nothing hurts, when we don't consider doing certain things that God might call us to do because, well, it might cost me something. It might be a... A, a crazy move financially or professionally or whatever. And, and it, it, we seem to have been so indoctrinated with the idea that, that God wants us comfortable and that, and that God wants us just to have it easy. And those are our role models sometimes, people who have it that way. And then we look at people who are really suffering for Christ and we go, please, I don't want that. I mean, I don't. I don't want to be, you know, Mother Teresa living on the streets with the lepers. You know, I'd rather be a Christian celebrity living on top of a hill and, and driving a nice car, you know. You ever think about it? Um, there are people, and I've been guilty of saying this myself, you know, that if I got to death and I finally died and I found out that none of it was true, I found out that after death there's just nothing or that everyone goes into a mystical, you know, state of steam or whatever or you do get to reincarnate and, you know, if you're Earl and you finished your list, you come to a higher life form or something like that. And, and I often say, and I hear people say this all the time, and there are famous people who have made this statement, you know, I wouldn't live my life any differently if I found out it was all a lie because I've had such a great life following Jesus Christ. Now, I mean, honestly, I do feel that way. And, but what, did, what does Paul say? Remember when he said, 
if it turns out there's no resurrection, he said, I am of all people most miserable. Because look at how he lived his life. He put his life on the line. Paul would never say, eh, if it turns out Jesus isn't real, big deal. Had a great life, went to church, got a pie and ice cream. It was great. He was like, hey, if this isn't real, what, what am I beaten for? Why am I suffering? I'm going to be furious if I find out it's not real. I am the most pathetic person ever. But man, does that give him a credibility. Because for him, it was all about, I want to do what the Father calls me to do. I want to take the message of the gospel wherever I can take it. And we, you just see it just oozing from his story. Now he says, now I'm going to Jerusalem, verse 25, to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who were in Jerusalem. And you know about this from other places. Paul took a collection in all the churches up in Asia Minor and across into Corinth and Athens and those areas and took a collection for the poor Jews who were in Jerusalem. Now, they were getting persecuted in Jerusalem. That was one reason why they were poor. Another reason why they were poor was they had experimented with communism and through the redistribution of wealth, ultimately everybody gave everything they had and then nobody had anything left. And so now Paul was having to go to Europe to get donations to try to support this failed experiment in redistribution of wealth because the deficit in Jerusalem got so pathetic. And so, that's not a political statement, it's a historical statement. So he's collecting money for them and he wants to deliver it personally. It pleased them, verse 27, indeed, and they are their debtors for if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Interesting verse, probably quoted out of context a lot of times by preachers who want people to give them their money and, you know, saying, look, I've ministered to you spiritual things, now you need to cough up your, your material things. Um, not exactly the idea of what he's saying here. He's saying that, that Christianity started in Jerusalem and people came out from Jerusalem, including Paul himself, in order to come and bring the gospel. So naturally, to repay that with material blessings is a logical thing that they want to do. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel that when you're ministered to, but that you want to participate in that. But it's, there are other scriptures that will talk about that sometimes. That's really not what this is referring to. He's just making the connection and saying, hey, They've been blessed by Jerusalem, and they want to be a blessing to Jerusalem. Therefore, verse 28, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, when I go and give them the gift personally, I shall go by way of you to Spain. It's kind of cool, the idea that Paul himself wanted to go and present this gift. It's something that sometimes when, when we go on a missions trip that 
that we're able to take some money from the church here and go and give it to someone who has a need in another country, one of the other churches or something like that. And our, the amount of money that we have compared to what they have, it's such a blessing to them. And I know that um, every time we go somewhere and have an opportunity to, to just give some money from our church and it causes people over there to be connected with all of you. It's, it really is a blessing. Typically on a missions trip, we'll just take like $500 and we'll say, okay, God, show us. We'll talk to the people on the trip. Show us where you might want us to invest this. And almost always something instantly comes up that fits perfectly with whatever the money is that we bring along. And then we usually give our own money too because you go, oh, this is great. But I mean, I remember one time we were down in El Salvador and, and um, Pastor Carlos Bautista down there in, in uh, San Salvador. Um, we saw, I mean, there's so much need, you can't believe it around there, but there was this little SUV of some kind, and it was a late model one, but it was smashed so bad that, I mean, it was like crushed up into a little ball. But you could tell it was a late model car, but it, when we junk cars here and can't do anything with them, they salvage title them, they smash them, and then they'll send them down there and maybe they can use the metal or scavenge some parts off of them or something like that. Well, one of the guys at church said, Carlos bought that, that car and he was hoping to fix it up. We're like, what? So we went and talked to Carlos. We go, have you got an estimate on the bodywork on this thing? I mean, I, seriously, I've never seen a car so smashed and mangled. And he goes, he goes, and Steve and I had just been praying about what to do with 500 bucks. And he goes, yeah, the, the guy, there's a guy here that, you know, is part of the body, and, and he thinks he can get it fixed for $500. <laughs> we go, you got it. Boom, we just gave him the money right there. And uh, so the next time down, we heard that he got it fixed up. So we really wanted to see this thing. It was a pretty nice car, I imagine, after it was fixed up. But by the time we got there, Carlos had traded it for like three other, a van for the church and some little junky car for him to use and another vehicle for the church. And it's like 500 bucks. You know, that's, that's amazing that that can do that. And it's such a blessing to be able to do that and to be able to represent our church and to go, hey, people all the way in a, in a whole other country in California where you think it's all you know, a bunch of selfish snobs because of what you see on TV and movies and everything, they want you to have this. And you can just tell Paul was excited to be able to, not just because of giving them money, because truth is, once people become dependent on others, you can give them all the money you want, and they're not usually going to learn to support themselves, and church history demonstrated that that was the case for a lot in Jerusalem. So it wasn't about, okay, this offering is going to solve your problems, but it was about this offering says that your brothers and sisters who you don't even know, many of them Gentiles who you look down your nose at, they love you and they want to bless you in this way. And Paul was just excited to carry that gift. And that was really the only reason he was going to Jerusalem. And in light of Acts chapter 21, and realizing the opposition, and knowing that he's probably going to be imprisoned when he gets there, and yet you see him saying, yeah, 
I'm going to Jerusalem to give this gift out. Like it's nothing because the gospel is that important to him. People who are lost were, were that important to him. That really touches me. Verse 28, therefore, when I have performed this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. But I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be refreshed together with you. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So Paul says, having said all this, pray for me. Please pray for me. I'm amazed how many times Paul asks people to pray that he'll have boldness. The guy seemed absolutely fearless. He couldn't be slowed down. He was just obsessed with doing what God told him to do. And yet, that was the fruit of people praying for him. And he realized, as bold as he was, he realized, I need people to be praying for me. I'm doing what I'm doing because you people will stand behind me. Many of you have never met me. You're over there in Rome. I'm heading to Jerusalem, but you pray for me because I don't know if this gift is going to work out, and I don't know if I'm going to be killed when I get to to Judea. I don't know what's going to happen, and there was a very real danger of that happening. You can read in the book of Acts and see how the whole story entailed, and ultimately, Sure enough, he made it to to Rome. And you read in the last chapter of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, well, let's turn over there. You see where where he winds up, and it's pretty cool. Paul got to Rome. Verse 16, Acts 28. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. They had seen how God had used him on the trip there on the, on the ship. And, and so they put him under house arrest. They knew he wasn't going anywhere. And it came to pass, verse 17, after three days, that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together, the Jewish leaders there in Rome. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And they said to him, we neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor 
Have we any of the brethren who came and reported? We don't know anything about this. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, Christianity, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. We've heard a lot of bad things about it. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved, but they were all talking about him. And, he go, and it goes on just to say that they laughed, but boy, were their lives changed because they were debating over, man, some of them came to Christ, some of them didn't. Paul remained there in captivity. We don't know from the Bible whether or not he ever got to leave Rome or, and go to Spain eventually. There are different extra-biblical accounts, some that say he, was, he died there in Rome, others that say he was, he was finally cut loose. Um, but he, he's in jail, <laughs> and he just can't wait to have visitors who he can tell about Christ. We see in other passages the guards that he led to the Lord. You know, that happened in Philippi and other places. And some of his letters he says, hey, my guard here is saying to tell you hi and God bless you too, you know. Because they kept giving him guards that were chained to him and they kept accepting Christ. So then they go, well, I can't leave, you know, guards in there praising God. Let's send in an even meaner guard. And another guard goes, he gets saved. And Paul's like, hey, bring him on. Let it happen. But, you know, just as we come to the conclusion and we, well, we still have chapter 16 left and, and we'll probably move through that rather quickly, Lord willing, next week or the following week. Um, Paul is all about the gospel. And all of his plans and his whole future, it's not about what hurts and what doesn't. It's not about what's comfortable and what's uncomfortable. It's not about what other people think or say. It's about him listening to the Lord and following this drive that he has to tell people about Jesus. And that is so amazing, so convicting too. It's the reason why we have, I believe, 14 books of the New Testament because Paul just was driven to get this message out. And when we look at that, I, personally, I can't help but be inspired to want to be a part of that myself, to be able to, to get the gospel out. I hear a cricket. I wonder who's calling me. Uh, it's an 877 number. My auto warranty is no doubt expiring. I haven't had a car with a warranty in my life. <laughs> but the gospel, that's what Paul was all about. And that, and that I think, ought to inspire all of us as we, as we go about our lives. And, and, you know, maybe this is a time for, for each of us to really pray that God would show us if there's a change to happen in our lives. Um, and also, what if... What if it's true that God wants you to suffer? 
What if it's true that he wants you or me to do something that is going to be costly, that is going to be painful or uncomfortable? Is it worth it? Are, are you willing to do it? Do you have that level of dedication? If not, i got to wonder, for all of us, how much do we really believe this stuff? <laughs> if, we're not, if we're not willing or open to realize that, you know, by somebody seeing us hurt, it might help them to see the truth. Are we willing to do that? Well, I remember we've had several of our people who are missionaries who were over in Cambodia and got dingy fever, and it just makes you useless. But I know, like having, having been there since then and, and seeing people react, for instance, to Steve Bailey, who not only they saw him with dingy fever, they saw him fall off a motorcycle and cut his leg open and get it all infected and everything. And all the good things that Steve has done to help the people over there, frankly, never made the impression that them seeing the way he handled being hurt and being sick. And I can look at the people and I watch as they look at him and there's just this sense of, of awe that somebody from way over here as far as they're concerned, he's some kind of billionaire, you know. But from way over there, we'd come over and get dirty and, and lift bricks and, and dig holes and get hurt and not wash your hands and go, I'm never going there again. Um, so, you know, be open to that. It might be that, that God wants you to hurt and that that's what he wants to use to say I love you to people who can't see it any other way. Don't live your life thinking that if you ever stub your toe, it's all over. Your pain could be just the beginning. And you know, think about it. There are people that you know, there are people that you know right here in this church, right here in this body, who have suffered horrible things, been through difficult times, you know what that does to you when you see it? You just look and just go, wow, that's, that's amazing. And, and, and you see a message that has a credibility that it wouldn't have otherwise. I think of Mary Beth Nakashima, who always was a powerful witness for the Lord and just a strong spokesperson for him. And God used her. She was a strong woman, but but never like when she lost her legs in a, in a crazy, twisting thing. And seeing how she handled that, I'm like, wow. And for a whole lot of people, sometimes that's what it takes. So are we willing to be poured out? Are we willing? If, if that's what it takes for us to really have a credible message, are we willing to hurt a bit? Are we willing to go... Yeah, you know, I'm planning on going to Jerusalem. And there are a bunch of people there who want to kill me. But I'm, if it works out, I'm, then I'm going to Rome after that. I don't care what anybody thinks. And if I get more scars along the way, more credibility for the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for saving Paul. 
this ornery little Jew that hated everyone. It was so smart that he wanted to devote his his gifts to destroying people and making himself great. And then you knocked him down and you blinded him so that he could finally actually see for the first time. And then you used him so powerfully and and then every once in a while you threw him in prison so he'd have time to write. And we have this New Testament because of it. And his testimony, God, may it resonate in our hearts where we live our lives. Help us to follow you. Like Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Help us to learn from his examples as we're, as we're almost finished with this book of Romans. It's, it's so full of you. It's so full of your gospel, your good news. But let it become more a part of us so that our lives would look credible. Whatever it costs us, whatever we have to lose in the process, we want personal credibility so that your gospel can be discovered by people who are dying and heading for hell otherwise. Thanks for this time tonight in your word. And Lord, I thank you for the time of fellowship that we're going to have now afterwards with the pie and ice cream. And, and um, I'm not going to ask you to bless it to the good of our bodies, but um, I'm going to thank you for the fellowship that we have in each other and the amazing capacities that our bodies have to be able to process this stuff. And we'll, and we'll be okay by tomorrow or the next day. So thank you. Bless our time of fellowship in Jesus' name. Amen.